With that said, let's turn to Luke chapter 5. We'll be in uh, verses 12 through 26 uh, today. And this is called Jesus Heals. This sermon will be a little bit different than normal, so we'll see how it goes. Luke 5, starting at verse 12. As always, listen carefully as this is God's word. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and led him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us back to the Gospel of Luke this morning to learn more about your Son, and use this Gospel to cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to see ourselves in these stories. We ask for the grace to see who we are and what we need. Furthermore, help us to see others with new eyes and to see how we treat them. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to come to know Christ more. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. And as always, for this, we need your grace. Help us to be amazed. Help us to wonder. Help us to say we've seen extraordinary things today. And so we pray, speak through these words of this gospel today. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus as we spend this year walking with him. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Our story begins with a healing touch. Verses 12 through 16, a healing touch. This is one of the stories of Jesus that we've read and heard a lot, lots of times. So much so that for some of us, we don't pay a lot of attention to it. 
Sometimes my curiosity gets the best of me and I wonder out loud, and that's what I'm going to do here. I'm going to wonder out loud about the man who felt Jesus' compassionate touch. He makes one appearance, has one request, and receives one touch. But that touch changes his life forever. So I'd like you to listen to it again carefully, and I wonder if his story went something like this. One year during harvest, my grip on the scythe seemed weak. The tips of my fingers numbed. First one finger, then another. Within a short time, I could grip the tool but scarcely feel it. By the end of the season, I felt nothing at all. The hand grasping the handle might as well have belonged to someone else. The feeling was gone. I said nothing to my wife, but I know she suspected something. How could she not? I carried my hand against my body like a wounded bird. One afternoon, I plunged my hands into a basin of water, intending to wash my face, and the water reddened. My finger was bleeding. I didn't even know I was wounded. How did I cut myself? On a knife? Did my hand slide across the sharp edge? It must have, but I didn't feel anything. It's on your clothes, too, my wife said softly. She was behind me, and before looking at her, I looked down at the crimson spots on my robe. For the longest time, I stood over the basin, staring at my hand. Somehow, I knew my life was being forever altered. Shall I go with you to tell the priest, she asked. No, I sighed, I'll go. I turned and looked into her moist eyes. Standing next to her was our three-year-old daughter. Squatting, I gazed into her face, and with my good hand, I stroked her cheek, saying nothing. What could I say? I stood and looked again at my wife. She touched my shoulder, and with my good hand, I touched hers. It would be our final touch. The priest didn't touch me. He looked at my hand, now wrapped in a rag. He looked at my face, now Shadowed in sorrow, I've never faulted him for what he said. He was only doing as he was instructed. He covered his mouth and extended his hand, palm forward. You are unclean, he told me. And with one pronouncement, I lost my family, my farm, my future, and my friends. My wife met me at the city gates with a sack of bread and some coins. She didn't speak. By now, friends have gathered. What I saw in their eyes was a precursor to what I've seen in every eye since. Fearful pity. As I stepped out, they stepped back. Their horror of my disease was greater than their concern for my heart. So they and everyone else I've met since stepped back. Five years have passed, and no one has touched me since. For five years, no one touched me. No one, not my wife, not my child, not my friends. No one touched me. They saw me. They spoke to me. I sensed love in their voices. I saw concern in their eyes, but I didn't feel their touch. Not once. What is common to you I now coveted, handshakes, warm embrace, a tap on the shoulder to get my attention, 
a kiss on the lips to steal a heart. Such moments were taken from my world. No one touched me. No one bumped into me. What I would have been given to be bumped into, to be caught in a crowd, for my shoulder to brush against another's. It hasn't happened for five years. How could it? I wasn't allowed on the street. Even the rabbis kept their distance from me. I wasn't permitted in my synagogue. I wasn't welcome in my own home. I repulsed those who saw me. Five years of leprosy had left my hands gnarled. The tips of my fingers were missing, as were portions of an ear and my nose. At the sight of me, fathers grabbed their children, mothers covered their faces, children pointed and stared. The rags on my body couldn't hide my sores, nor could the wrap on my face hide the rage in my eyes. I didn't even try to hide it. How many nights did I shake my crippled fist at the silent sky? What did I do to deserve this? But never a reply. Some think I sinned. Some think my parents sinned. I don't know. All I know is I grew so tired of it all, sleeping in the leper colony, smelling the stench. I grew so tired of that damnable bell I was required to wear around my neck to warn people of my presence as if I needed it. One glance and the announcements began, unclean, unclean, unclean. Several weeks ago, I dared walk the road into my village. I had no intent of entering. Heaven knows I only wanted to look on my fields, gaze upon my home, and see by some chance the face of my wife. But I didn't see her. I saw some children playing in a pasture. I hid behind a tree and watched them scamper and run. Their faces were so joyful and their laughter so contagious for a moment. For just a moment, I was no longer a leper. I was a farmer. I was a father. I was a man. Infused with their happiness, I stepped out from behind the tree and straightened my back and breathed deeply. And they saw me. And they screamed. And they scattered. One lingered, though, behind the others. One paused and looked in my direction. I don't know. I can't say for sure, but I think she was my daughter. I think she was looking for her father. And that look is what made me take the step I took today. Of course, it was reckless. Of course, it was risky. But what do I got to lose? He calls himself God's son. Either he'll hear my complaint and kill me or accept my demands and heal me. Those were my thoughts. I came to him as a defiant man, moved not by faith but by desperation. God had brought this calamity on my body, and he would either fix it or end it. But then I saw him, and when I saw him, I was changed. You have to remember, I'm a farmer, not a poet. So I can't find the words to describe what I saw. All I can say is the Judean mornings are sometimes so fresh and the sunrise is so glorious that to look at them is to forget the heat of the day before and the hurt of times past. And when I looked at his face, I saw a Judean morning. Before he spoke, I knew he cared. Somehow I knew he hated this disease as much as, no, more than I hated it. 
My rage became trust. My anger became hope. From behind a rock, I watched him descend a hill. Throngs of people were following him. I waited until he was only a few paces from me, and then I stepped out. Master! He stopped and looked in my direction, as did dozens of others. A flood of fear swept across the crowd. Arms flew in front of faces. Children ducked behind parents. Unclean, someone shouted. I don't blame them. I was a huddled mass of death. But I scarcely heard them. I scarcely saw them. Their panic I'd seen a thousand times. His compassion, however, I'd never seen before. Everyone stepped back except him. He stepped towards me, towards me. Five years ago, my wife stepped towards me. She was the last one to do so. Now he did. I didn't move. I just spoke. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Had he healed me with a word, I'd been thrilled. Had he cured me with a prayer, I'd have rejoiced. But he wasn't satisfied with speaking to me. He drew near me. He touched me. Five years ago, my wife touched me. No one has touched me since until today. I will, his words were as tender as his touch, be clean. Energy flooded my body like water through a plowed field. In an instant, in a moment, I felt warmth where there was numbness. I felt strength where there had been weakness. My back straightened and my head lifted. We now stood face to face, and he smiled. He cupped his hands on my cheeks and drew me near so I could feel the warmth of his breath and see the wetness in his eyes. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So that is where I'm going. I will show myself to my priest and embrace him. I will show myself to my wife and embrace her. I will pick up my daughter and embrace her. I'll never forget the one who touched me. He could have healed me with a word, but he wanted to do more than just heal me. He wanted to honor me, to validate me, to christen me, so to speak. Imagine that, unworthy to be touched by man, yet worthy of the touch of God. I was a leper. I was untouchable. No one touched me until today. Perhaps his story went something like that. But this is not the only story in the passage. Because we immediately come to another healing. And once again, it's an easy story to read over and over and just move on, because we've read it so many times before. But this story is not about a healing touch. It's about a healing word. A healing word. And let's listen to it again carefully, because there's far more here than meets the eye. Starting at verse 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. 
Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. We've seen the leper. Now we have a paralytic. He stares a bleak future in the face. See, there were no neurosurgeons back then, no specialists, no rehabilitation hospitals, no physical therapists, no medical breakthroughs on the horizon, no miracle drugs in the cabinet. Sympathy is the only prescription this community can dispense. And he's had enough of that. He doesn't want sympathy. He wants his life back. The life he has now is a horizontal one. It's full of bed sores and blank stares at the ceiling. And that ceiling is his only priest. It neither acknowledges his confessions nor hears his prayers. And his now spindly arms and legs form the bars to a cell that imprison him, isolating him from the rest of the world. And so he lays there, alone on a three-by-six mat, day after day, week after week, month after month. When he runs, it's in his dreams. And his dreams always wake up to a body that can't roll over and can't get back to sleep for all the hurt the dream has brought. He's never able to rise up and stretch with the morning sun. He's never able to socialize in the streets. He's never able to step out for a breath of fresh air. He's never able to walk off his frustrations. He's never able to have a change of scenery without inconveniencing a handful of people. He has to rely on others for everything. Every sip of water, every bite of food, Every time he has to go to the bathroom, someone else has to turn him and bathe him and clothe him. Dependency, humiliation, confinement, boredom, loneliness, frustration, shame, despair. Those are just a few of the entries in the thesaurus that defines life on a three-by-six mat. But for all the hard words, this man has one positive word that gives his life a single syllable of meaning. Friends. He has four faithful friends. They've been his best friends since the day they played ball together. And even though those days are long gone, somehow, some way, they've stayed friends. They're his best friends in the whole world, and he would do anything for them if he could do anything. And now these four friends have heard some incredible things that bring him to his mat. 
they have news of a miracle worker. Ever since Jesus cast out a demon from a man in the synagogue, the news has crested out from Capernaum in waves. It's crashed into the shore cities on the Sea of Galilee, and now it's hitting the cities farther inland. It's even washing up as far south as Jerusalem. And then a second story went out about the healing of a leper, and that crashed into the villages like a tidal wave. And the crowd swelled, and people flooded into Capernaum from everywhere. They came to see the carpenter turned teacher turned miracle worker, this phenomenon they call the Nazarene. They're a catch all collection of seekers, spectators, speculators, and spies. Some come with a hopeful eye, wanting to be healed. Others come with a curious eye, wanting to be convinced. Some come with a jaundiced eye wanting to find out who's rocking the religious boat and stop him from making any more waves. The place where Jesus is speaking today is packed. The latecomers are wedged into the entrance, standing on tiptoes, cupping their ears to catch a few of the teacher's words. The last one to arrive is this paralytic, carried by his four friends each one shouldering a corner of the mat. But the wall of people is impenetrable, and as they try to get through, they're kind of hushed and waved away by an impatient crowd straining to hear. And not to be denied, the determined friends back away and brainstorm another approach. The stairs, what about the outside stairs to the roof? Their enthusiasm mounts with every step they climb. By the time they get to the top, their hearts are pounding in their throats. The man on the mat is just looking at them, trying to figure out what's going on. The only thing he hears them say is, man, you are heavy. And laying him down, the friends survey the flat roof to try to pinpoint where Jesus is standing. And with adrenaline pumping, they start pulling up clay tiles and tossing them aside. They burrow through dried clay and mud laced with sturdy branches, and they're making a mess. The falling debris creates a billowing cloud of dust beneath them. The crowds push back, coughing and complaining, covering their eyes and mouth with their hands and arms. And everybody looks up. And the first thing they see is this tangle of fingers worming their way to widen the hole. They see a shaft of sunlight and a pair of eyes searching for Jesus. There he is. And then four pairs of hands widening the hole. And finally, they see the bottom of a bed mat, you know, like those used by sick people, you know, like the one that paralyzed guy uses. So they watch the paralyzed guy come down on the mat. Several men stretch forward to catch the mat and help lower it to the floor, easing the strain on the four guys hanging over the edge of the hole. But notice Jesus' eyes are transfixed on the forehead circling the hole in the ceiling, the text says he saw their faith. Their faith, the faith of the friends. It's on the wings of their faith that mercy from heaven descends. There's no record they said anything. So it wasn't what Jesus heard that captured his heart. It was what he saw. What did he see? He saw four sweaty guys willing to put a shoulder to their faith. 
Eight scraped hands willing to burrow through any obstacle. Four dirty faces hungering for a healing, wide-eyed with anticipation, like street kids pressing their noses against the bakery window, famished for a taste of heaven. These guys dared what no adults with any sense of responsibility would have done. They tore up somebody's roof, not to mention interrupting someone else while he was teaching, and inconvenienced everybody who was listening, making them cough and getting them dirty all at the same time. Just like little kids, children. But the guy they came to see is the same guy who said, Luke 18, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He doesn't look at these guys as an interruption. He looks up, he sees four sweaty, dirty faces, and sees faith. And his eyes glimmer with thank you. The friends want him to heal their friend. But Jesus doesn't settle for simple healing of the body. He wants to heal the soul. He leapfrogs the physical and deals with the spiritual. To heal the body is temporary. To heal the soul soul is eternal. The friend's request is valid but timid. The crowd's expectations are high but not high enough. They expect him to treat the physical, for that's what they see. He chooses to treat the spiritual because that's what he sees. They want Jesus to give the man a new body so he can walk. Jesus wants to give the man grace so he can live. And so he looks down at this wrung out dish rag of a man who lies dropped at his feet. He sees the paralysis is deeper than it appears. Because within that emaciated body lies a crippled soul, paralyzed from sin, atrophied from shame. The man looks up at Jesus, squinting with his eyes to shield him from the sun that's now shining through that stupid hole in the roof. But Jesus moves to him, blocks the sun, eclipses the light. And the face of God smiles at this guy. And a sweet piece of manna from heaven falls to the man on the mat. Everyone's expecting to hear you are healed. But instead, the words they hear are, man, your sins are forgiven you. How long has he waited to hear those words? How many tears has he cried to the ceiling to look down on him, pleading for an answer to the enigma of this still life? And he hears in Jesus' words and sees in Jesus' smile as if to say, My child, be of good cheer. God is not angry with you. And with quivering lips, this paralyzed man smiles back. He fights back the tears, but it's no use. He squeezes his eyes shut and years of pent-up pain spill from his eyes to stream down the side of his face because sometimes God is so touched by what he sees that he gives us what we need and not simply what we ask for. But the tender mercy stroke in the face of the paralytic are received as a slap to the face of the religious leaders. While heaven is rejoicing, they're too busy making mental notes to join in the dance. They reason to himself, Jesus claims the power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus claims to be God. 
Precisely. That is the point. Their reasoning is correct. It, they got to the right conclusion, but it didn't bring them to Christ. If that hole in the roof teaches us anything, it's that faith is what brings a person to Christ, not mere intellectual reasoning. Curiosity crowded that classroom, but it was faith that dug a hole through the roof to bring that paralytic to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus reads his critics' minds as if to offer further proof that he is who he says he is. We pick up the story, verse 22. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Both are relatively easy to say. Both are relatively impossible to do. Unless, of course, you're God. In that case, one is as easy as the other, which explains Jesus' lack of concern about this. So the religious leaders don't write him off as just another faith healer. Jesus does what no mere mortal would be presumptuous enough to do. He forgives this man his sins against God. And then he puts the final exclamation point on the debate. He looks once again at the man on the mat, verse 24. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And even with the paralysis healed, atrophied muscles would have made the man wobble like a newborn colt. But the paralytic receives grace upon grace. Not only is he given forgiveness and healing, he's given back his strength. Getting up, he heaves his mat over his shoulder and praises God all the way out the door. And the crowd that wouldn't move out of the way to let him in steps aside to let him out. And he walks by, you hear, end of verse 26, we have seen extraordinary things today. It's a bright, shining moment for the kingdom of God. It's an incredible moment for the people in that room. For through the hole in the roof came the glory of a far kingdom, reflecting off the face of its king. And outside, dancing in the street to the praise of that same king, are five friends with the joy of heaven streaming down their cheeks. Our world could use a bit more of the joy of heaven streaming down our cheeks. Why is that? It's because we need healing. We need healing. Our world is full of lepers today. We are surrounded by lepers. They just don't have a skin disease to easily identify themselves. It starts when we're young. There's always one kid in the neighborhood or at school or maybe even at church whom no one likes. He's different. He's uncoordinated. She's ugly. She's so shy that just showing up is a challenge. They're lepers. It happens in the marketplace, too. Many of you have met the guy who's really, really smart but has absolutely no people skills, and it's painful just to talk to him. Or the woman you can't say hi to without hearing every single detail of her painful life. So you go out of the way, your way to avoid them both. They're lepers. 
They fall in any number of categories. The woman who pursued a degree and a career at the expense of husband and family, and people look at her now and say, why? The man who calls you every day after work because his wife left him to go find herself, and he drags himself home to feed two kids who ask him every night, Dad, when's Mom coming home? And he's so tired now, he's numb to it all. The kids who carry around terrible secrets of their father's abuse or mom's drinking and arrive at school trying to hide the fact they haven't had breakfast again. The elderly man whose family has gone and forgotten him. So he goes and gets his hair cut once a week just so somebody would touch him in a caring way. We all know people who are so lonely that just saying hi to them makes their day. They stand on the periphery of our social circles, darting their eyes away, lowering their head self-consciously. They're all lepers. They all need Jesus, and they're not alone. Because our world is full of paralytics, too. In fact, they're a lot like lepers. And they can walk all right, they just don't want to. Some people are paralyzed by apathy. They can't do anything because they don't care anymore. They've given up. Nothing good is going to happen to them. Nobody nice is going to show up in their life. There's no one where fun for them to go. They have no friends, so they just quit. They go to work, they pay their bills, they do their stuff, but they're alone and tired and numb and unfeeling. And their tombstone will read, died at 31, buried at 81. They're paralytics. Others are paralyzed by fear. Fear of the past. They tried to build a relationship, but they got burned. They're not going to make that mistake again. Maybe it's fear of the future. How are we going to pay for the house and aging parents and kids' college and our own retirement? They have no idea, and it scares the life out of them. Many fear the present. He got laid off. I could, too. She got divorced. I could, too. He got in a bad accident. I could, too. She got left back. I could, too. She fell and broke her ankle. I could too. And so they work harder and strive harder and excel more out of fear. They're paralytics. Many are paralyzed by shame. If you only knew what I've done, I could never make up for it. I could never earn your respect. I've been addicted to drugs. I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't stop. I've been addicted to pleasure. The internet makes it way too easy. I've been addicted to control. I'm in charge of everything, everyone, everywhere, and I hurt people, and I don't know how to stop. If you only knew what I've done, I could never make up for it. I could never earn your respect. They're all paralytics. They all need Jesus. You and I both know that there are lepers among us. There are paralytics among us, very close to us. Because once again, as that great philosopher Pogo once said, we have met the enemy, and he is us. If you don't know who Pogo is, look him up. Do you understand that spiritually? You're a leper. Leprosy is treated so harshly in the book of Leviticus, not because it's a disease caused by sin, but because it's a disease that represents sin. It starts small with just a little spot, but gradually spreads until it infects the whole body. 
And then it begins to numb us to the pain of sin in our life. It cauterizes our heart and sears our conscience. And our sin becomes more evident and it starts to drive our friends away. And it will keep attacking and attacking and attacking until it reduces us to nobody's from nowhere. Sin controls people through two great lies. The first lie is that we're not sinners. There's nothing wrong with us. But the Bible says otherwise, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The second lie is worse. It says that, yes, we're sinners, but we're so bad we're beyond help. It's too late for me. If you really knew the truth about me, Pastor, you'd be shocked. But one, I don't shock very easily anymore. Sadly, I've heard it all before. And two, the Bible tells us, 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You're no longer unclean. But what if you can't, still can't walk because spiritually you're paralytic? Can't be good enough. Can't save yourself, can't save anybody else either. It's not up to you because you're helpless, you're weak, you're a sinner, you're ungodly, you're a paralytic. There's good news. The Apostle Paul says, Romans 5, 6, for we were still weak at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. The very heart of the gospel is the supreme truth that God accepts us with no conditions whatsoever. When we put our trust in the atoning sacrifice of his incarnate son, although we are helplessly sinful, by grace God forgives us completely. It's by his infinite grace that we're saved, not by moral character or works of righteousness or commandment keeping or even going to church when we do nothing but accept God's total pardon, we receive the guarantee of eternal life. Titus 3, 4 through 7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is good news. Beloved, that is the gospel. And in the story of the leper, and in the story of the paralytic, we just get to see it in action. I've often said that miracles are parables in action, and parables are miracles in story form. The touch of Christ for the leper and the power of his word for the paralytic is a parable of the incarnation and the cross. Jesus took on flesh, became sin for us, and gave us his strength. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, God, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus looked at us when we were utterly helpless, and he forgave us and healed us. 
as we see in what Jesus did for this paralytic, lying immobile in the dust. His radiant smile and gentle words washing over a man who can't do anything for himself. We see what he did for us. That's the lesson of the paralytic. We just need a mat. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He takes your leprosy, you get his purity. He took your paralysis, you get his strength. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 reminds us, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Because remember, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Who among us would ever think to ask God for what he really gives? Which one of us would dare say, God, would you please hang yourself on a tool of torture as a substitution for every sin, every mistake, and every stupid thing I've ever done? And then have the audacity to add, and after you forgive me, could you prepare a place for me in your house to live forever? And if that isn't enough, would you please live within me and protect me and guide me and bless me with more than I could ever deserve? Are we totally aware of our sinfulness and separation from God, acknowledging that we're sinners, that we have nothing in ourselves to commend us to God? We have to lay down before the Lord Jesus Christ in humility and reverence, submitting to him as our only hope and telling him that if he does not save us, we will be lost. And when we ask him to heal us of our sin that lives deep in our souls, or do we only ask for the small stuff, little things like a long life and a healthy body and a good job? Not bad from our perspective, but from God's perspective, it's like flying a kite when he offers us wings. Jesus asked the doubters, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? How would you answer that question? Which is easier, to forgive a soul or to heal a body? Which caused Jesus less pain? Providing this man with healing or providing this man with heaven? To heal the man's body took a simple command. To forgive the man's sins took Jesus' blood. The first was done in a house of friends, the second on a hill with thieves. One took his words, the other took his body. One took a moment, the other took his life. Which is easier? So strong is his love for this motley crew of faithful friends that he goes beyond their appeal and goes straight to the cross. Jesus already knows the cost of grace. He already knows the price of forgiveness, but he offers it anyway, and he hasn't changed. What happened then can happen now. The face that smiled at a paralytic then can smile at a paralytic now. The word that heals body and soul can, then can heal body and soul now. Because Jesus says a few verses later, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we are called to live a life that looks to God because he's poured out his grace on those of us who realize that without Christ, we really are paralytics and lepers who are utterly helpless to do anything at all to deserve his grace. But that's the essence of grace, getting what you don't deserve. We have to show what that looks like. 
starting by bringing that grace to those who are paralyzed and who need a few faithful friends who will bear their burden and bring them to Christ. He is waiting for you. And all those willing to pick up a mat said, Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Open our eyes that we might remember how once we were the unwelcome, the unwanted, the unknown, the unimportant. Help us see how we've sinned and how we've treated others as outcasts. Help us to reach out to them now with the love of our Savior. Let us be quick to repent, quicker to forgive, and quickest to believe. We all need you, Lord, but most of us are too ashamed, too afraid, too apathetic to come too close, thinking we're too sinful, too worthless to be in your presence. Help us to remember that it's the sick and sinful for whom you come, and help us to come to you for that healing. We long to hear the words the paralytic heard, your sins are forgiven, you are healed. Help us to realize you're not only able to heal, but you want to heal us, physically and spiritually. Lord, heal our souls, come into our lives, make us whole. Remind us again that we can come to you and beg, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And we can do this because the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.